when mechanical motorized vehicles became popular and more prevalent in the 19th century, people were worried that these um, strange, strange conveyances would cause all kinds of havoc and danger. The good people of England decided that they needed to pass laws to protect people from these, these monstrous machines that would trundle down the lanes and roads at top speeds of 10 miles an hour. And so among their ordinances, one was they capped the speed at 4 miles per hour, but still feeling like that was unsafe, they decreed that everywhere one of these should be driven. A pedestrian should run out ahead of it by 400 yards, waving a red flag and blowing a horn or ringing bells to warn people of the mechanical monster coming behind him. And then people decided, well, wouldn't it just be easier to put the horn or the bell on the, on the automobile? And, and they did, and it was good. And, and there was much rejoicing. <laughs> Very early on, with these old motorized vehicles, they realized that they had to do something to ensure safety. You had to be able to warn people who were out in front of you or warn other drivers. And this is why your car comes standard with a horn. Now, in the early days in America, they were innovating the type of warning device that you would have on a car. And one of the most popular in the 1900s was the Gabriel Auto Horn, invented by Claude Foster of Cleveland, Ohio. In 1904, Foster, uh, actually in 1900, Foster took $1,500 that he had saved. He was a trombone player and an inventor, and he invented the Gabriel Horn Manufacturing Company. And it was a set of pipes that would go into the exhaust, and it would play a melodic chord when you would, when you would signal the horn. But it got people's attentions. It was a great warning device, and it became very popular when he began to sell it in 1904. And Foster himself said that he named the horn after the angel Gabriel. And uh, you can see that early on there was a concern about cars having warning devices. And it just matched in, in Foster's genius that if you want to warn people, the best way to do it is with a musical horn. And the best representative of that is an angel. Foster lived on to the uh, healthy age of 92, but he spent the last six years in the hospital. A hospital, by the way, that he used his fortune to uh, give money to hospitals. He was something of a philanthropist. He was in the hospital for the last six years of his life because of an automobile accident. I make no point with that. I just felt like doing a Paul Harvey, now you know the rest of the story moment. And if you don't know who Paul Harvey is, ask an old person. <laughs> Trumpets, horns, we think of them as warning devices when we think of our car horn. When that seventh seal is broken in Revelation, there's silence for half an hour. Everything is silent 
in the throne room of God. God's decrees in those seven seals, that, 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 that will, that edict of the one on the throne, they've been fulfilled and now there's nothing but silence. But that silence is about to be broken by a trumpet, by seven trumpets, angels with seven trumpets ready to sound the horn. And they're not making music. They're getting the attention of a world that's out of control. They're they're calling earth to pay attention to what heaven knows is best. And the cycle, the new cycle of seven trumpets, there's going to be four warnings and the last three are so ominous that they are called woes or they are called dooms. These are, are serious, these last three. And by the way, we could break this down, and some of you in your studies of Revelation, I encourage you to do so, take a look at them. But when you do, don't miss the point that all seven of these go together, and there is a big picture here. These four warnings and these three, three woes point out not only what the warning is, but the way God gets the world to pay attention to his warnings. They look like this. If you take all seven that come in this series, in this cycle, the first four come at us pretty rapidly. The first, second, third, fourth trumpets. And in each of those, a third of the earth is destroyed. There's always some action in heaven. An angel takes a coal from a brazier in heaven, throws it upon the earth. It goes to show how tiny the earth is against the the magnificence of heaven. And that heaven truly is in control. Remember, there's a picture being painted here and Jesus is revealing to us. We are the post-apocalyptic church, meaning that we're the church that has the secrets that Christ has revealed. He's opened them up. We are this side of that revelation. We've now been brought into the, the, the arena of heaven where the actions in heaven have ramifications on earth. And and each of these sounding trumpets that are warning the earth, there's a third of the earth destroyed, a third of the grass, of the vegetation, of the the trees, a third of the seas, of the oceans, a third of the rivers, a third of the sun, moon, and stars. It sort of sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? But it's an uncreation. It's It's a shaking of the creation in Genesis. And again, our first reaction usually is, why is God doing this? Why does he have to destroy a third of everything? Well, the perspective of Revelation is, and not to be glib, he left two-thirds standing. Okay? And, And it was only a third. That there's actually grace in that. Yes, but why still? Why a third? Because this creation is already broken before Heaven took these actions. These are trumpets. It's a wake-up call. It's an appeal to earth to understand the wickedness that is there and how they need to wake up and pay attention to it. One of the statements that's said is that even after these first four trumpets and this one-third destruction of creation, the inhabitants of the earth... They don't repent. 
They continue to do the wickedness that infects the earth, that hurts the people of the earth. Even after this sort of destruction, the bitterness of the waters, the, the, the eradication of the lights in the sky, even though conditions on earth become so difficult, people will still not heed the warning. Four trumpets have been sounded, and there's a reluctance of the people of the earth to pay attention. That's the big picture of these. There's a break between the fourth trumpet and the fifth trumpet when a figure shows up. It's an eagle. The eagle is a symbol of a divine messenger. The people who are hearing this revelation of Jesus Christ for the first time, they would have, they would have caught on to that. An eagle. An eagle flying through the sky. And he's crying out, Woe! He's crying out, Danger! He's warning us that something bad is about to happen. That if we thought the last four were critical, what's coming next is extremely critical. Once again, the actions in heaven take place on earth. And there's a star that falls out of the sky, and it's an angel, it's a messenger, who goes and unleashes the demonic hordes of the pit which once again is is, is a way of saying heaven is still in control heaven has the keys to the pit that's called the abyss the destroyer who is down in that pit can only be released because heaven allows it i know this gets us into some difficult territory we wrestle with this Why is God having anything to do with demonic leaders in a pit? Well, who put him in that pit? Who chained him up? Who leashed him in the first place? But why would God even do this? Because these seven trumpets take us through, you know, we struggle with this, but do we ever stop and wonder how God struggles with this? That he sees the oppression and the wickedness on earth, and that calls upon him to be just. To be right, something has to be done. You and I do that. We see injustices. We see crimes committed. We see senseless acts of violence. And we say something should be done about this. And yet we're also called to mercy. We're torn by mercy in our hearts. Who can stand if God decides to judge all the earth? Who could really stand? Who would really be righteous enough to stand up against God's wave of justice should He unleash it fully upon the earth. And we know that. And we know that we participate in the brokenness of this earth. So here is God in heaven. And He struggles with justice on the one side, but mercy on the other. And so what He chooses to do is to warn the inhabitants of the earth. Warn them. Wake up. And with the release of the the, the opening of the abyss and the destroyer and the horde of locust armies, this strange demonic army. People are hurt. But again, there's mercy in this because no one is killed. Not yet. Maybe. Maybe that will be enough. Maybe they will pay attention. By the way, also in the fifth trumpet, there is a mark. God's people god's faithful ones are protected by this mark we may come back to that when we talk about the mark of the beast because there's the mark of the beast but there's also the mark of the lamb 
And it's God's sign of protection. Just like, doesn't that kind of remind you of Exodus and the Passover? And that the blood that was put on the doorposts of the houses of God's people protected them from the destroyer. God is balancing His justice and His mercy and He's torn by the oppression and the wickedness on the earth. But maybe with the eagle, maybe with the trumpets, maybe they'll heed the warning. Sadly, they don't. And so there's a sixth trumpet. This time, one-third of humanity is slaughtered by a powerful army. And it reminds us of all of the armies through the ages. Like the Assyrian army, the Babylonian army, the Greek army, the Roman army. Even armies in our own day and age. When armies go to war, it's not antiseptic. It's, it's not clean. There's going to be destruction and there's going to be death. And we use euphemisms, Orwellian doublespeak, like collateral damage. It means, Revelation at least, doesn't insult our intelligence and says, a third of the people of the earth are killed. And what of the surviving two-thirds? They do not repent. Friends, we're six trumpets and an eagle into this, and no one will repent. What is God going to do? Well, we get to the seventh trumpet, but wait. But wait. But before we get to the seventh trumpet... And, and there's an earthquake. And the earthquake doesn't even kill nearly as many as a third of the inhabitants of the earth. But it, the earthquake takes place in the great city. But wait, even after the earthquake, then the seventh trumpet is blown when the people repent. Now, now what happened? What happened between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet? That people would change their ways. Did it, just take, did it just take six disasters, seven disasters, for it all to take place? Did something happen in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet that made a difference? It did. And that's why I want to take you to Revelation 10 and 11. Now, now eight and nine surround this and set this up. But in 10 and 11, you begin to see what the whole thing is all about. In Revelation 9, a statement is made. The people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And... They did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now this is at the end of the sixth trumpet. And you begin to feel not only John's frustration, but the frustration of heaven. That after all of the plagues, the people will still not change their ways. I mean, we're looking for a wake-up call. But no, instead, what do the people turn to? They turn to their idols. They turn to the gods that they make in their own images. They turn to the gods that cannot do anything for them, but these are the powers that they respect. And along with that, not only are they breaking that commandment of the Ten Commandments, 
But there's some other commandments that they're breaking, like murder, sexual immorality, stealing. And then there's that whole thing about witchcraft. This isn't just Halloween witchcraft, okay? This means that the people trust in their ability to control the world. This is magic. This is technique. The old word for this is the same word that we get our word pharmacy from. Don't worry about it if you're in the medical field and you use pharmaceuticals, okay? But once again, the idea that you know, this, these pharmaceuticals that can do so much that we should put so much faith in them that they can fix everything. That power that is used sometime. And I don't care whether it's a legitimate pharmaceutical or whether it's an illegal drug or if it's just something, whether it's you know, chocolate pie that we have to eat to get a fix. Whatever sort of addiction or whatever sort of snake oil it may be, there has always been an element in human society that says we can master things better than God and here's the core of sin. You did get the point that I'm not against medicine. Did you get that? Okay, I don't want you walking out of here. Oh, I better not take my meds today. Don't do that, okay? Follow your doctor's orders, please. All right. Now, this doctor, though, has to tell you about other kinds of health. And it's just interesting that always these problems in the world leave God out of it somehow. And that's why the pe- what the people need to repent of. So what's God going to do? What's God going to do to finally get their attention? Revelation 10 begins with the vision of a most unusual angel. One who comes down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud, because he's huge. He has a rainbow over his head, because he's huge. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll, probably because he's huge. And it had been opened. That means this scroll is revealed. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Because he's huge. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write down, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said, don't write it down. Point being, there's still some things that heaven keeps secret, and that's okay. But the things that we need to know have been opened, like the things in that scroll. We'll spend so much time worrying about the mysteries that heaven tries to keep secret, we're not going to pay attention to what's on the scroll that's opened. The angel uh, I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand towards heaven and he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. You know, all of those regions that lost a third of their territory. He's swearing an oath by the one who rightfully judges, owns, and creates those things. He said, there'll be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It'll happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Remember these guys, the prophets. When the voice from heaven spoke to me again, go take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, told him to give me the small scroll, take it, eat it. It'll be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it'll turn sour in your stomach. 
So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel. I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth. And when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Why? Because God's word is good. But delivering the message can sometimes turn your stomach. Because you have to say things that people do not want to hear. But it's the thing that has to be said. I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And I was given a measuring stick. I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it's been turned over to the nations. They'll trample the holy city for 42 months. And I'll give you power, or I will give power, to my two witnesses. The two witnesses. We go now from the large angel to two very important agents. The two witnesses. Here they are. I know they look like wizards, but they're actually witnesses. The two witnesses. Everybody wants to know, who are the two witnesses? We're going to answer that today. But one of the things you first have to know is how to read Revelation. You've been taught how to read Revelation. I think some of you have. Some of you maybe, maybe are, are you know, wanting to know for the first time, how do I read Revelation? It's easy. You don't need to go to school. You don't need special training. You need to go watch superhero movies, okay? Because superhero movies always have Easter eggs. You know what those are? They're little references to something else. So if you go see a movie and, and, and then they, they, they reference, uh, you know, in a Batman movie, they start talking about Superman. In an Ant-Man movie, they start talking about Captain America or the Falcon. You know, they, just, they, they throw in these little references. And you can always tell when they do that if you're not up on it. Just look for a group of geeks in the theater, okay? And if they all start high-fiving and just, you know, tittering and giggling like little girls, then there you go. There's your Easter egg. You know that an Easter egg happened. Hey, that's not new to superhero movies. Revelation has Easter eggs. You remember that the angel said something about my servants, the prophets? The witnesses are described, and every one of these is an Easter egg about some other prophet. I'm going to take you through it and show you. Here we go. Easter egg hunt. I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they'll be clothed in sackcloth. Who's clothed in sackcloth? That's Isaiah. Isaiah. They'll prophesy during the 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. That's from Zechariah. He just mentioned, he just, he just name-checked Zechariah there. He did, uh, if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and it consumes their enemies. Wait, I know who that sounds like. That's Jeremiah. We've got Isaiah, we've got Zechariah, we've got Jeremiah. We're, we're calling in all of the prophets on this. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. These two witnesses, they have the power to shut up the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. Who's that? Rain? No rain? Elijah, there you go. Contest on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. We know that story. We've read that book. This is good. We're finding a lot of these. They have the power to turn rivers. Now, you're going to get this one, okay? Okay, and your clue is Charlton Heston. They, they have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Who is it? Moses, of course. 
we've just gone back and we've got to the, the, the main prophet, the prophet of the prophets, Moses. All right, who are these two witnesses? These two witnesses, their names are Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses. And that's just part of it. They are every prophet that's come before them, but more. Because the next Easter egg is not just an Easter egg. It's the key to understanding who they are. These two witnesses are powerful, by the way. I mean, if you combine all of the history and the authority and the power of Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Moses, you would think these are unstoppable witnesses. And as witnesses, by the way, their job is to do just what those prophets did, to warn the people, to alert them to what God's plan are. If you'll allow me for just a second, let's define right here and now what prophecy is, okay? Prophecy is not fortune-telling. Prophecy is not future-gazing. That's what Nostradamus does, and no, he's not in the Bible, okay? Okay? That's, that's what fortune cookies do, okay? They give you the numbers for the lottery, and if you follow what the fortune cookie says, you have no better chance than you did before of winning the lottery. That's what prophecy is often thought to mean. Prophecy means that one speaks for God. A prophet is God's press agent, God's ambassador, God's spokesperson who comes in the name of the Lord and declares something to the nations to warn them, to wake them up to what God is doing and what God demands. And it may include what God will do, but they can change it. Because usually it says, if you do not repent, then God must act in justice. But if you repent, God will change his ways. Look at the story of Jonah. He prophesies God's word to Nineveh. Jonah's convinced. He's he's taking odds that that Nineveh will not repent. Nineveh will be destroyed. Nineveh repents. God does not destroy them. This is what a prophet does. And these two witnesses stand in that tradition. And in some ways they they are greater than all the prophets that have gone before them. You would think they're unstoppable, but verse 7, when they complete their testimony, when they give their prophecy, their testimony, their word that they have to speak, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he conquers them. He kills them. That's not supposed to happen. This is the bad guy, the beast. He just killed the two witnesses. That doesn't happen. Their bodies lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all the people, tribes, languages, and nations stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. Not only are they killed, but their bodies are desecrated. This is not supposed to happen. This is the worst thing ever. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But wait, didn't we just identify in verse 8 their Lord? Their Lord who was crucified? After three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. 
Terror struck all of those who were staring at them. And then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake. Everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third is coming quickly. It's not the earthquake that caused the people to repent. It's the vindication of God. It's the power of God to overcome death. You probably saw a little bit of Elijah in there. And maybe you were even thinking of Ezekiel. Maybe you were even thinking of Enoch and the other prophets who were brought up to heaven. But the one that you really want to see there is Christ. Because they were in the city where he was crucified. The one that they imitate more than any of the other prophets is Jesus Christ. The prophet who's greater than Moses. The Lord who was crucified, but is now risen. The one who overcame death because God vindicated him. They imitate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They, too, are raised by the power of God that raised Jesus and vindicated him. They imitate the one who has been in Revelation this whole time, the Lamb. Now, We often say that Revelation teaches us that God's people win. And we saw here, wait, that looks like a defeat. What did they do to win the victory? What did they do to call the people of earth to repentance? Because that's what changes things. When they are risen like the lamb who was slain, That's when the earth repents, and then the seventh trumpet is blown, and then the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven are unified in one. But what did these witnesses do? They did exactly what Christ did. They just remained faithful. They didn't fight back. They didn't take up arms. They didn't mount a revolution. They didn't have superior firepower. They didn't put in a high-tech security system. They didn't strike back. They didn't depend on firepower from heaven or call down 10,000 legions of angels. They just said, we will be faithful. And if they kill us, they still will not have the victory. Church, the two witnesses are you. You are the two witnesses. We are the two witnesses. Wait a second, there's a lot more than two of us here, Benjamin. Yeah, I know. Two means reinforcement in Revelation numbering systems. In the Old Testament, if you really wanted to verify something, you not only had a witness, but you had two witnesses. These two witnesses are a way of saying that we've got more than just a single prophet who's been sent out into the world now. We've got the post-apocalyptic church. We've got the church that is called to be faithful unto death. We are called in Revelation to be faithful, to be witnesses, and to remain faithful to that message. Anyone who must go to the sword, Revelation says, let him go to the sword. Anyone who wants to follow Christ must be faithful unto death. That doesn't mean faithful. You know, we often make that the unofficial sixth step of salvation. 
You know, we talk about grace. Everybody's baptized. You're saved by God's grace. Oh, by the way, there's one more thing on this. We didn't tell you until it's all over with. You better be faithful unto death or this whole deal is off. And that's not the way it works. We need to be faithful and holy because God's gift of eternal life means something. And he has a better way of living for us than living in a worldly sinful way. But being faithful unto death means you remain faithful to Christ even though everyone else is against you. When we say that Revelation says we win, that's not exactly so. Revelation says God wins and we get invited to the victory party. We get to be a part of that. But it's that faithful witness of the church. That faithful witness of the church that can change an unrepentant world. Trumpets have blown. Eagles have warned. Horrible disasters have come upon the earth. But it's when they see the faithful witness remaining faithful and not backing down and being vindicated by God That's when the people in the great city repent and turn to God. The risen Christ calls his people to be faithful witnesses, and that's the game changer. The message, and you you know, we can talk all about trumpets and eagles and who's that destroyer in the pit and, and how on earth do these armies kill a third of the inhabitants of the earth? But keep your eyes focused on the one on the one that the witnesses focus on. As it says in Hebrews, fix your eyes upon Jesus. He, he, you have that message in, in Hebrews where it says that he endured hardships. He endured persecution from sinful men. And yet, he, he, he kept going. He becomes the pioneer of our faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If we keep our eyes on Christ, we will be faithful witnesses. And I'm going to tell you right now, whether we know it or not, whether we ever know it or not, it will change the state of a world that badly needs to repent and come to God. Take this as your encouragement today from Christ's revelation to his church. As we stand and sing this song, we want to encourage anybody. Somebody here may need to repent. I know that's a very churchy word. It just means humble yourself before God. And as Scripture says, if you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up. Maybe your life, you've got your own plan figured out. You've got your own way you're going to do things. But maybe there's been some wake-up call and you want to submit your life to Christ. I'd say answer that call because life in Christ is going to be fulfilling. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be meaningful. It might not be easy, but it's going to have purpose. Whatever way you need to respond, there'll be shepherds here uh, to greet you. If you want to come down here, if you want to go to room 100, they'll be there to greet you. Let's stand, let's sing, let's encourage one another.